Back when I started climbing, there were a few photos which really inspired me. One was Ed Drummond's shot of Pete Crew on Great Wall at Cloggy. It's a really evocative black and white photo, showing Crew on his tiptoes reaching upwards into the dark recesses above. It scared the shit out of me, if I'm honest. I loved Drummond's piece in Hard Rock, and he really embodied the kind of anti-hero persona that I loved in climbing stories. This is something I think about when I'm putting these episodes together. What kind of hero is my protagonist? Are they the anti-hero? Stevie Haston's or the Don Willans of the world? The classical hero, Chris Bonington. Willing heroes, unwilling heroes, tragic heroes. All of the stories that we tell are built out of these basic structures. I had loads of photos torn from magazines on my wall as a teenager. And one was John Dickey's shot of Leo Holding on the route that would later become the prophet. Naturally, Leo was one of my heroes at the time. In the picture, Leo has his left foot high, rocking over. He's way above his gear, crimping the edge of a flared seam, and there's just this total focus in his eyes. He's right there at the limit of what's possible, absolutely on sight on a really dangerous route. And I was so inspired by this. This was what I wanted my climbing to be. Putting yourself out there in this really emotional experience. When I caught up with Leo, what I really wanted to know was how he became this person that would put himself in that position. Because people don't do ground-up first ascents on El Cap. People don't even try to do that. The seed for the prophet had been planted a few years earlier, on Leo's first visit to Yosemite as an 18-year-old. Along with Patch Hammond, he made a near-on-site ascent of El Nino, over five days. What's weird is that they hadn't even intended to climb a big wall on this trip. So how the hell did this happen? You're listening to Factor 2, from UK Climbing. In 1998, was a bit of a watershed year for me, really. I was... 18 and I left home a couple of years earlier. I grew up not far from here in the lakes and then left after my GCSEs. Uh, my birthday's late in the year, so I'm young. So I left home when I was 15 basically and moved to Clumberis area to start my levels at a college down there, which I promptly dropped out of um, and then bummed around with no money for a couple of years. And then 1998 was the year that I first got a proper sponsorship deal back with Berghaus. So I had a little bit more than no money. <laughs> and then that Yosemite trip in the autumn that year was my first proper trip, really, my first long trip. And Yosemite is, you know, it's Yosemite, isn't it? It's, the, it's certainly the Mecca, it's the crucible, it's the, uh, it is the best climbing area in the world. And I went with my mate Patch Hammond, another 18-year-old from Wales, and both climbing really well, both competently on-site in E7 quite regularly. We didn't actually go with any major plans. Um, we just wanted to go and, and check it out. And that was what brought us to the Holy Grail. Finding the Holy Grail. That's definitely a quest for a hero. In wondering what kind of hero Leo was, I thought about the story of Alexander the Great. So back when he's just 20, Alexander's father, Philip, is assassinated and he becomes the leader of this growing nation. He goes off and fights wars in Persia and then later India. He genuinely believes that he's immortal and he's not even subject to physical risk that other people would face. He thinks he's actually a deity and he never loses a battle. But there's a sad story that at the end of his life, he's only 32 and he reaches the end of the road. His army deserts him. He's so brave that nobody wants to follow him anymore. And actually, he's achieved everything he can already. Supposedly, he says, I have no more worlds to conquer. I guess in Leo's case, 
with this ascent of El Nino. That's what I'm wondering. You're just 18. You've gone out to Yosemite. You haven't even intended to do a big wall. And you've basically on-sighted El Cap. Where do you go from there? How are you ever going to top that? There's this great anecdote about Alexander, that when he comes back from a major battle, all of the great leaders around come to congratulate him, except for one. And Alexander, being a fairly gracious man, goes to find Diogenes, and he finds him lazing around in the sun, enjoying himself. And he says, why weren't you there, dude? Is there anything I could do for you? And Diogenes just says, you are blocking the sun. Could you move to your left a bit? So I guess the question here is, is Leo Alexander the Great? Has he set himself up with no more worlds to conquer? As this invincible hero? Or is he Diogenes? Did he manage to conquer El Cap because he was so young and naive that he just had no respect for the challenge? Yeah, I was a really cocky little cheeky 18-year-old as well. I suppose as an 18-year-old, you... And I was quite a late developer, so I was still extremely I was still a boy really when I was 18 you're still figuring out who you are you're still developing all the time we didn't actually go with the intention of climbing El Cap bearing in mind in 1998 there was two free routes on El Cap um there was the Salathe and the Nose were really the only free routes which existed prior to that and I remember reading about Yuji almost on site in Salathe and being really amazed and overwhelmed by it. And we were super into sort of head-pointing, like gnarly little grit-esque things on the mountain crags of Wales at the time, which is a style which has never really caught on anywhere else. <laughs> That's not true. It's caught on a little bit here and there in uh, in Europe. And we sort of had the intention of doing something similar in Yosemite, because although, you know, there's obviously there's the great crags of Yosemite, great crags, the great walls, um, there's millions of other little buttresses. And when you put your sort of Clamberis Pass head on, where we'd been putting all these filler little overhanging arets and blank walls, you know, little pitches up to no more than 100 feet. But at the time, we were super into it. And um, and that's kind of the British way, right? We, we fill our crags with, with roots, no bolts. There's so much potential for that in Yosemite, or at least that's what I thought at the time. Uh, so we kind of went with the intention of putting up some E8s and E9s on on like single pitch stuff but then when we got there and you see el cap in particular it's just so ridiculously impressive it just absolutely eclipses everything else in yosemite let alone you know elsewhere <laughs> it's it's just mind-bogglingly big and clean and steep and beautiful and compelling but it's also extremely intimidating i mean it only had a handful of free ascents. So it kind of free climbing El Cap wasn't even on the radar, really. While they were in the valley, Leo and Patch met Alex and Thomas Huber. The German legends had just established the third free route on El Cap, El Nino. Oh yeah, Alex was one of the most famous climbers in the world. They just hadn't quite um, established themselves. We we struck up a strange friendship, really, because they were, and they're so professional and so German. And Patch and I were so unprofessional and so English. And uh, there's a really funny front cover of On the Edge, uh, the big magazine in the UK at the time, which is a picture of me and Patch and Alex and Thomas stood in El Cap Meadow in the classic Bridwell pose, all with our shirts off. 
And it also just so happens that me and Patch is slightly side onto the camera and they're both front on and it just looks ridiculous because they they look literally twice the size of us. It was largely due to the Huber brothers suggesting that we should have a go, but it was also due to a kind of um, shift in perception that we had in the time that we were there, not just from the Hubers, from Dean Potter, from Jose Pereira, from Conrad, from these people that we were hanging out with who climbed El Cap a lot and could see that we were really good climbers. They're like, look, you guys are good climbers. Don't worry about the scale. Don't worry about the logistics. And I'm pretty, well, I'm 100% sure that the reason that it went so well is because Patch and I climbed a lot the two main places where we climbed were gogarth and the slate quarries and the clumberis pass but particularly gogarth and the slate quarries el nino is very unusual el cap route in that there's very little crack climbing there's almost no like full-on yosemite crack climbing exactly the opposite of the salafe it's face climbing and you get these amazing slabs incredibly beautiful l cap granite it's called these beautiful technical featureless slabs which is completely comparable to the rainbow slab in in the denorwood quarries where patch and i had climbed loads and then the rest of el nino it's about half and half is diorite which is the americans hate it because it's kind of a bit loose and it's a mixture of crack and face and corners which is exactly like Gogarth style climbing. I remember clearly what happened was it was towards the end of the trip and there's always a big storm before the end of October and we didn't have any of the kit we needed for wall climbing. So we had this conversation like, well, I'll tell you what, let's see if we can get what we need, which is essentially a portal ledge with a fly sheet, a haul bag and some Jumars. And if we can blag that stuff off someone, we were both totally skint as well, um, then we'll give it a go. And 10 minutes after we had that conversation, I met Conrad Anker for the first time and we bumped into him at the lodge and he was like, oh, I'm going to Antarctica for three months tomorrow. You can borrow my portal edge and you can borrow my haul bag, literally in that American way within 30 seconds of meeting him. He just handed us all the kit that we needed and Patch and I looked at each other and we're like, well, we're on. It's weird now because I'm so used to it. You know, the guidebook description to Lord of the Flies on Dennis Cromlick, E66A, it's a full page long. When we did El Nino, Alex and Thomas handed us a hand-drawn topo for a 3,000 foot long 30 pitch route which was a single piece of A4 paper with a dotted line on it. You know, I'm very used to topos now. I wasn't there. We'd never used them before. Remember, are you kidding me? That's it. <laughs> We've got to climb a, a 3,000 foot 30 pitch route. I mean, that would be like a book. When you stand at the bottom of El Cap and you look up, it's it just isn't comparable to anything that you've ever seen as a climber in the UK or for that matter almost anywhere else you know it's just it's so big it's you know it's it's the size of Scarfell Pike chopped in half from sea level vertical wall so the first pitch at the time it was given 13b I think it's been quite drastically downgraded since I think it's maybe 12d now but at the time 13b which is 8a and it's a slab and I'm and I'm really good at that style and uh, I was super fit I flashed it to very near the top of the pitch 
and then I put the quick draw on a ball. I went up to clip it. It was a really big run out. And I went up to clip it and my foot popped and I nearly took a monster because I had the rope in my hand and it was really run out anyway. <gasps> and I held it and then I dropped the rope and I had that kind of panic where I was like, ah, ah, ah. should I try and clip it? Should I try and keep going? Should I, I'm going to take a, this is like an ankle breaking fall. Um, and then I thought, screw it. There's another 29 pitches and this isn't even one of the hardest ones. So I grabbed the quick draw clipped the rope in, lowered down, pulled the rope, and then did it second go. And then I fucking unsighted every other pitch. <laughs> it was heavily chalked, and that was the reason that I unsighted it, is because the Hubers, they kind of introduced the full-on red pointing of El Cap, where you top down, you know, you drop, you drop 3,000 foot of rope down the crag, and you red point in the way that the way that we do on hard routes in the UK and the way that you do on sport climbs. And they prepped it more than I had ever seen a, a route prepped, you know, like super ticked up every foothold, every sort lots of heavy tick marking, um, which actually makes an enormous difference on that style of granite slab climbing. There's no way anyone in the world would stand a chance of on-siting anything hard on Yosemite slabs unless they're ticked because it's just you just can't see anything and then you see a tick mark like way over there and you think well there must be something there so yeah that was a massive advantage basically that it was they'd literally just done it a week earlier two weeks earlier however we also learned the hard way that double rope technique is not good if you jumar in because you jumar in on eight mil ropes and uh i remember halfway up the wall we struggled with the, the logistics, like hauling and um, and setting up the portalage. It took us about three hours to set up the portalage the first time because we just, it's not quite as, actually it is logical. It just wasn't, it was an old ledge and it needed a bit of bashing around. And uh, we thought we were doing something wrong, whereas we just weren't trying hard enough, you know what I mean? Uh, and hauling the bags, we passed a knot. We did a big haul, so passing a knot was, and now I can do it in three minutes. But without the experience, it's like, how the hell are we going to do this then? Didn't even have ground school with anyone. And Jumaring too. I didn't, we didn't even know how to Jumar properly that compared to the technique I use now, it was really rubbish. There's a big ledge called the Big Sur approximately halfway up the wall. And it's a sweet ledge. It's a dead flat, not huge, but spacious ledge. It's probably five meters wide, one meter deep, but dead flat. And uh, it's a wonderful place. We spent a couple of nights there. There's a load of hard climbing right off that, another two hard slab pitches, and then about four easier pitch, well, still hard pitches that lead up to this giant roof called the Black Cave. And we did that in a day, and then we fixed down to the ledge because they're in a perfect straight line, but we tied two 60-meter, eight-mil ropes together and wrapped down, and it was super spacey. You got past the knot, obviously, and it worked. You could, And that's right. I went down first, and... We had to balance, it's overhanging, but then it's slabby underneath. So you're in space the whole time going, shit, I hope this works. 2,000 foot up the wall, dangling on an eight mil bouncy rope. And it did, it, it landed us straight back onto the ledge. Uh, and then the next day we had to zoom our back up.
then there was a storm the next day so we uh, we got stormed on which was just incredible being in this big storm on the wall engulfed in cloud and the whole experience was completely magical and then uh, and then the storm cleared and then we had to GMR up to the high point and that's right I went up first then patch came up and then we got there and I'd already dropped one of the chalk bags and then patch dropped the other on the way up so we didn't have a chalk bag which is a big deal when you're climbing in the California sunshine on greasy granite you need chalk so I had to wrap back down 300 feet more like nearly 400 foot and back then I used to find Jumo in a bitch and it is a bitch Jumo up such a thin dynamic rope tied together you know there's 20 foot stretch when you start going yeah. um, so I had to go back down and then we made a chalk bag out of uh, out of a, a little stuff sack and uh, and a couple of wires we put two wires around the mouth to hold it open and then I jumoed all the way back up we ditched all the stuff we left everything on the uh, on the big sir halfway up the wall, and then we climbed to the top of the wall without hauling the stuff because we were using more energy hauling than we were climbing. So we had a massive day where we did twelve hundred feet of climbing, starting off with an eight A roof pitch, and finished in the dark. And then we went back later to get the stuff. I think what we said is if the roof if the great roof goes well we'll keep going because if it doesn't that could take a whole day just to red point that pitch and I on-sighted it and I got to the BLA and I was like patch you know because if he'd wanted to lead that pitch as well that would have really messed our logistics up uh, but he already hadn't done two of the pitches he was like screw it I'll just second so we're like right let's go <laughs> and, uh, and it was the most amazing day I remember clearly you belay on a tree, the last pitch, which is right on the edge of the wall, and uh, and it was dark, and I remember thinking, holy shit, I unsighted it. You know, I did it first go. I, I didn't in my wildest dreams think that I was gonna unsight it. I remember clearly a month earlier seeing El Cap for the first time and thinking, oh my god, Yuji Hirayama nearly unsighted the Salathe last year. And I just, that was just overwhelming. It just seemed so many leagues above my competency. Tied to that tree at the top, Billy and Patrick, I thought, wow, this is, this is a life changer. I think a great deal of it was youthful bravado and confidence. And uh, yeah, we, I mean, we, we totally went for it and we went all in. And it went incredibly well, you know, it just, it couldn't have gone any better really, apart from that bloody quick draw on the first pitch. It was a completely life-changing experience for me in multiple ways. The evolution of perception to think, wow, I thought that was impossible a week ago. And it, not only was it not impossible, it wasn't even that hard. Imagine what might be possible. So it was a complete revelation. And then the following season, I went back a year later with exactly the opposite mindset where I was like, right, you know, there's big sections of El Nino. There's like scrambling in the middle of the wall. There's a whole pitch of like fourth class in the middle. And you can't even see those features from the ground. There's massive ledge systems that are completely invisible from the meadow, partly because they're so far away and partly because of the aspect. Uh, and you only need 
a few matchsticks in the right places to be able to free climb something. So in 1999, I went back and I thought, right, anything's possible. You just have to find the Braille trail. You just have to find that line of matchsticks. And I spent two entire seasons trying to free climb the dorm wall um, and didn't find the way. <laughs> Got shut down. But it was it, it was a huge revelation. And I remember thinking in the meadow the next day after we got down from El Nino, looking up thinking, wow, there's an entire pitch of scrambling and you can't even see it. It looks impossible. It looks like completely blank bolt ladder terrain and actually it's scrambling. Wow. You know, it's uh, it w was completely like having a different pair of eyes. Leo had made headlines in the climbing press before. You might remember from the first episode of Factor 2 that he on-sighted Master's Wall in a pair of shoes that were too big for him when he was just 17. He'd also climbed Lord of the Flies by Head Torch. This was a game-changer because it had global significance. Luckily for Leo, Ian Parnell was on a neighbouring route and took some photographs of him and Patch while they were climbing. Patch and Leo were away travelling and climbing and not necessarily aware of what was being reported about them at the time. The media thing kind of came off the back of that, really which was extremely fortunate because if there'd been no photos, there wouldn't have been a story. And also everything was a lot slower then. This was in the days before everything was videoed. Um, there wasn't even any phone signal in Yosemite until about 2002, let alone 4G and, you know, Facebook didn't exist. You know, LCAP free climbing, it's the best crag in the world. And then for a solid 10 years, it didn't catch on. I couldn't believe it. The, you know, Alex, the, the Huber brothers and Tommy Caldwell, and to a lesser extent myself, and then a couple of other people just had a field day for more than a decade where no one else was free climbing on El Cap. Um, and then it caught on about 10 years ago, you know, the sort of 2010-ish, this decade. Finally, everyone was like, hang on a minute, this is the best crag in the world. And now it's popular. And it's. A, I'm glad that we had that time because unless you're like really good at that style of climbing, you can do it fast. Red pointing on a wall is not a simple process. And, uh, and so things get popular. And if there's other people trying to free climb the same route at the same time, that can be a, a bit of a mess, basically, because there's ropes everywhere and aid climbers coming through and... It's, um, it can, it can be, get a bit ugly. That El Nino experience was just so perfect. I've almost been looking for that again, because it was, not only did the climb go extremely well, the sort of psychological journey of first big wall, being caught in a storm up there, all these new experiences, which are extremely adventurous, aside from the sort of, technical perspective the performance element of the climb it's such a big adventure climbing a, a giant cliff it's proper swashbuckling old school adventure although i have had some other amazing days in yosemite on, on el cap none of them have been the same as that five days because they were no longer fresh it was no longer unknown yeah i didn't know that route yeah i didn't know if we could link both those walls but it's different order of magnitude to that completely blind 
experience where you have no idea what's going to happen or what's coming up, it's difficult to remember how you used to see things because your perspective evolves. It's like watching a child grow up. It's so slow that you don't notice the changes. But then when you look back over periods of time, it's almost impossible to remember. You know, you think, oh, you know, as you were saying, I used to think that was the living end. And now... So I think my hypothesis about Leo wasn't really correct at the start. El Nino opened his eyes up to what was possible. And there were more worlds to be conquered after all. El Nino gave him the confidence to be a part of the Stone Monkeys. It demonstrated his ability to pull a performance out of the bag. But it is bittersweet. And we'll all have done this. While he's got other adventures to have, he can never repeat that first naive roll of the dice. That sense you get when you're coming of age and you plant the first real seeds of the direction your adult life will take. I've not really thought about it in this way. That you just can't replicate that feeling. You just have to revel in the memory. You'll have more great adventures in the future. And nothing's quite as sweet as the first. You've been listening to Factor 2 from UK Climbing. I'm Will Treasure. Thanks for listening.